Facts of Faith with Nae Lupondwana, 7 to 8 p.m. To hear your voice, Midupit, six minutes after seven. Good evening and welcome. You're listening to Facts of Faith. My name is Nayelu Pondona. We are together until eight. So we now continue our conversation. If you remember quite well, the last time we had a conversation with Rabbi Levi, we spoke about who the Jews are. Well, both the people, their culture, their faith, all of those things that make up what we have come to be told are Jews. So we pick up from where we left off. Where we left off was a very, very important part when I had hoped to ask some questions, which I do understand might, might be uncomfortable to some people, but the rabbi was more than willing and he did... Uh, uh, suggest that perhaps we need to have this conversation because we have not come to the uncomfortable part yet and yes we are not going to be talking about politics that's not what we're intending to talk about some people are yearning and eagerly waiting for questions about Israeli-Palestinian relations that is not going to be part of our conversation we are not talking about the conflict we are talking about Jewish people the people we have been told are Jews with various backgrounds. We're going to learn more about those, as I said, the people, their culture, their faith, and their history, as we have been told by a variety of sources. So, joining us will be Rabbi Levi Weinberg. He's a spiritual leader of the Hamoror Center. Is an Orthodox Jewish congregation. That's the Ham Awar Center. And he's the Dean of Beit Mordechai, a postgraduate program for the study of the Talmud and Jewish law. He'll be joining us after the break. But for you, I'd like to encourage you from the very onset to dial the numbers if you'd like to join in the conversation. I would love to hear your questions and your comments. It would make this conversation all the more richer. The number is to dial 011-714-2006. Again, 011-714-2006. If you prefer to send a text message, you can send that to our SMS line 413914 Each text message Last time I checked, cost you what one rand fifty. And for those of you who are on social media, when I say social media, I'm referring to the sites, Twitter and Facebook. You'll find us there at SFM Radio. That's our handle on Twitter and Facebook at SM at SFM Radio and the Twiddle, <laughs> the Twitter. Uh, what what do you call it again? Uh, What's that? Is it a hash? What hashtag? The hashtag. The hashtag is SFM Facts of Faith. There you go. All right. Let's begin. I'm Nayelu Pondona. This is SFM, and you're listening to Facts of Faith. I don't know. The views and ideas expressed in this program are views expressly of the people sharing them and not of the anchor or of that of this broadcaster. All persons, juristic or natural, are to be held responsible for their own representations offered on this program by their agents and not this corporation. Any and all consumption of our conversational substance is entirely at your own discretion. Please be advised that this program airs subject matter that has the potential to destabilize and challenge your intellectual equilibrium. If you are excitable, profound caution when consuming our subject matter is advised. Participation in this program is a voluntary enterprise and as such is expected to be considered and delivered. Liberated on. Kindly note that, just as the anchor is, all participants, guests, and callers are encouraged to engage in this our freedom of expression and any of our civil liberties responsibly. 
Hashtag SAFM Facts of Faith Let's synchronize our watches. My time says it's 11 minutes after 7. I don't know what's happening today. I'm stumbling all over my words. Let's hope I'll find my feet and words in the process of time. Rabbi Weinberg, good evening to you and thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us. Good evening, Naye. Good evening to your listeners. Let's begin right off the bat with the questions that we left off unanswered uh, the last time we spoke. In fact, I couldn't even ask them because we ran out of time. So I'm going to begin right there so that if the callers would like to join in the conversation, I would have asked those questions. First and foremost, we're talking about Jewish people. And yet, when you began our conversation, you identified these people as descendants of Abraham. Am I correct? Correct. Why Why are they called Jews and yet they're descendants of Abraham? These are descendants, descendants of... Why are they not called Abrahamites, for example? Well, Abrahamites would include a whole lot of other nations. Indeed. So uh, we have to narrow it down. If we're talking about Jews who live with the specific faith of Judaism... Their history goes back to the revelation at Sinai, which is several generations after Abraham. Now, even put it this way, let, let's give some date. The, uh, God revealed himself at Sinai <clears throat> to the Jewish people, sorry, in the year from creation to four. Four, eight. Just for some context, this year is 5,781. So subtract 2448 from 5781 and about 3,500 years ago. Now, this was a few hundred years after Abraham, 430 years after Abraham was told by God, go forth and I will make you into a great nation. That's a long time. So to trace it only to Abraham would be to ignore everybody who descended from Abraham, from Isaac, through all those generations. So we traced ourselves back to the exodus from Egypt and God's revelation to us at Sinai. Even further, fast forwarding another thousand years or so, um, the the people of Israel were split into two nations, two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. I believe we talked about this in our last show. There were ten tribes in the northern kingdom, two tribes plus the tribe of Levi which was not allocated a specific portion of land. They were God's uh, special um, tribe. They were dedicated to the service of God in the temple and to teaching the people. In any case, they didn't have their particular area of land, but they were in the southern kingdom, two tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and the tribe of Levi, and a smattering of others. They were the southern kingdom, which was called Judea, Yehuda. When they split, those in the southern kingdom were called Judeans and later on Jews. Okay. The ten, yeah, the ten tribes are lost. So pretty much anyone who's around today is presumably from Judah or from Benjamin or from Levi as I am. Okay. You, you, you're counting two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and the tri- tribe of Le- Levi. And then you then say there's 10 who are lost. The, the total there is 13. Were there 13 tribes in total? That's why I mentioned that the tribe of Levi was not allocated a particular section of the land. They were meant to be spread out among all the other tribes both to serve as uh, God's people to teach the nation 
and also to come to the temple to serve as the the people's representatives in religious worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So you're suggesting there are 13, not 12. The, there were 12 sons of Jacob. One of those sons was Joseph. The tribe of Joseph was split into two. I don't mean there was some argument or division between them. I mean that they are counted as two, Manasseh and Ephraim. Ah, the half-tribe of Manasseh. Okay, that answers the question I was going to ask later. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. Okay, so we're talking about now these two tribes that, well, that came from Joseph, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. What happened to Ephraim? Is Is Ephraim part of the ten? Both of them are part of the ten. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Um, let's 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 move on back to, to to my list of questions. I I I understood what happened at Sinai to be a continuation, not a beginning. But you seem to be beginning at Sinai. At Sinai, we are talking about Israelites. We're not talking about Jews at that point. And if I understood your answer right now, you said after they had separated and they were divided into the northern tribes and the southern tribes, then uh, the, the Judeans became the Jews. Why would you call those people at Sinai Jews? And yet, in actual fact, they were never Jews at that time. They were, they were not called Jews. They were called Israelites. Yeah. But I'm using a term that we have today. If I said Israelite, it doesn't mean anything to anybody unless he's actually studying the Bible. They're not a reality in today's world. Jews are a reality in today's world. So I'm using the term which people can identify with and recognize. Okay. At Sinai, there was no covenant, was there? It was merely a giving of the the Ten Commandments. Am I correct or am I mistaken? No, well, no, it was definitely a covenant. Okay. It wasn't a one-off um, show. It was meant to be continued as a covenant by all those who were there at Sinai yeah. and their descendants. Okay. But for them to arrive at Sinai, it was because God had heard their cries and these were people that were already identified as God's people. And the covenant that we know, or the covenants that we know of, are the covenant between Abraham and God, and then later on, Jacob, who becomes Israel and God. Can you point us to a covenant between the Jews as we have them today and God? Is there a covenant between these tribes, these southern tribes, and God? The covenant that we have traces itself mainly to Sinai. The the, uh, recognition that God gave to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were as a family that um, were close to him, recognized him when most of humanity did not recognize God, They were pagans, they worshipped all kinds of idols, all kinds of forces of nature, but they didn't recognize one God in heaven. This family of Abraham and his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, and their children, they did. So there was a special connection between them already from before, but they were not bound by any kind of covenant to live in any particular way. They weren't commanded, they weren't instructed by God, they weren't given any special precepts. That began at Sinai. Okay, all right. So these instructions were given to the people that left Egypt. And if if history records correctly, it was not only the people of Israel who left Egypt. There were some Egyptians who left Egypt with the Israelites. And if I'm following that correctly, they too were recipients of the commands or that covenant, as you call it. Yes, they were. 
Okay, so that would make them equal recipients of the covenant between God and those who were at Sinai, at the foot of Sinai, correct? Correct, and that applies even today. Okay. Although we talk about Jews or Israelites as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is not an exclusive club. Anyone who wants from any nation, any race, uh, just about uh, anyone for practical purposes. Anyone who wants to join is welcome. Yeah. Okay. Now, there is this one thing that seems to have been a bit of a problem, especially at the Jerusalem Council. This is uh, post-Old Testament times now, where they debated the issue of circumcision. The, God had instructed Abraham that those who are going to be his children must be circumcised. Do you still hold, do you still hold to that? Yes, we still keep that. We still keep that covenant of Abraham, but we keep it not just because God made that covenant with Abraham, but because at Sinai, God made as part of the covenant going forward one of the commandments is circumcision. Is, is that at Sinai as well? Existed, it existed before, but we keep it as part of the Sinai covenant. Okay. Another issue that was rather peculiar about modern-day Jews is that there seems to have been a great number of things that were focused on the temple that was to be built or the sanctuary or the tabernacle. And there does not seem to be any such reference to the direction when you pray, looking in that direction as Daniel did, or the actual reverencing the place where Solomon built the temple. Is that still the case? Does God still have a place that he calls his name, by his name? Yeah, but he's kind of uh, away on vacation, long vacation. Long, long absence. Explain what that but, means. But um, the place where God chose to make His Spirit dwell, which is the temple in Jerusalem, that is still holy. Uh, we don't actually go there because of its sanctity and because we are not considered pure enough to go there. But that place is still holy. As a matter of fact, the remnant of that original temple is called the Western Wall. It's not the Western Wall of the Temple, but it's the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. Remember, the temple was on a mountain, and as you went up, you got closer and closer to the temple itself. So at the base of the mountain, there is this uh, wall, surrounding wall, the western part of that wall is still there and is still a central place of worship for Jews worldwide. Okay, so, so you're saying you don't go there because you don't consider yourselves worthy? Uh, worthy or pure enough. Okay. To, yeah. Okay, but... That was never an instruction. God never said you, you cannot go there if you don't consider yourselves worthy enough. Surely all those ordinances of bringing certain offerings when you have done something that would regard you as unworthy, you should be doing that as God has instructed. Why would you take your own decision? I'm sorry, I didn't understand your question. First of all, it's not a matter of whether we consider ourselves worthy. But there are very specific and technical laws about who is considered pure and who is considered impure. It's not a, a subjective evaluation. It's an objective and factual criterion. So we don't have that um, ability to purify ourselves as we need to, and therefore we don't engage in these uh, sacrifices and ceremonies, and we don't even go up to, to a place that's as holy as the Temple Mount. 
do you still have priests as were ordained in Leviticus? We still have people who are descended from the tribe of priesthood, and they are still given specific special recognition. They are the ones who bless the people. Periodically, they pronounce God's blessings, uh, may God bless you and keep you, etc. They are the ones who still pronounce those blessings. They are so given recognition, they are the first to be called to read the Torah whenever the Torah is read. They are honored whenever their grace is recited after meals. We look to honor a priest, a Kohen, a descendant of the priestly uh, clan. But otherwise, they don't serve in the temple. There is no temple. They don't offer any offerings to God. There is no such thing that practice nowadays. All right. The reason why they don't offer is that the temple is no longer under the control of Jews, is it? It doesn't exist. It was destroyed. Yes. Yes. Not once. And now, where it used to stand, there is a mosque there, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, isn't it? Yes. Why? There was, there was a Christian church on the site, there's a mosque on the site, and uh, it's been fought over for centuries. Yes. And, and the, the dominant and very domineering structure that almost is a lifeline, lifetime landmark there it seems to be that dome now. Why? Why is there a dome there? Does that not signify something that there is no longer the temple that was supposed to stand forever? Correct. So what stands there now is a Muslim structure. Correct. Not a Jewish one. Why? So, what happened, so what happened? That's a, that's a long history. And uh, it goes back a thousand years. As I said, the Christians had it, the Muslims took it over, then the, the, um, the it was fought over back and forth, and it passed from hand to hand. Remember that originally, after the temple was destroyed, the second destruction was at the hands of the Romans. So the Romans held Jerusalem, and they, in fact, made it Judenrein. They forbade Jews from even entering there. They renamed the city Eila Capitolina. They, they made all sorts of uh, Roman structures on it, even pagan structures. It was a very thoroughly Roman and Greek-style city. And no Jews lived there for centuries. Um, and then it was taken from the Romans by the Persians, from the Persians. It, it was the site of multiple, multiple battles over the centuries for the past 2,000 years. The reason why I'm asking this question, Rabbi, is almost every time, at least those times that are documented in Scripture, when the Jewish people or the Israelites would lose control of the mount and thus the temple, and then it would be destroyed or ransacked. It was because the people of God had been denied by God, and God had said they will be taken to Babylon, they will be taken over by other countries, and all those curses we see in, 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 in numbers. It would appear as though Almost every time, I don't remember, maybe you can correct me, a time where the temple would be taken over by foreigners and God is still pleased with his people. All the events that would lead up to the taking over of the temple and the destruction of the temple, it is because God's people had betrayed God and God had denied them. You are no longer my people, as it says in Hosea. Everything was correct up until the last phrase. Okay, okay. Go ahead. Correct you, sir. The idea was, the idea of a temple is that God said, I will dwell amongst you. As he said the very first time, he asked the Israelites in the desert, in Sinai, to construct a portable temple, which would be a disassembled and reassembled at the next stop in their journeys through the desert. He asked them to make a temple. So when he said 
when he said that, the words were, they shall make for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell in their midst. That's the point of the temple. It's not the building. God doesn't really need an address. The point was that there would be a visible, tangible presence of God, of God with, among us. When the people didn't deserve that, that tangible, visible presence, or when they over-identified with the structure of the temple, Rather than the spirit of God, which was in the temple, they were they found refuge in the fact that they had a temple, rather than in God's presence among them. Then it became a problem, and God said, "I'm going to withdraw my presence from the temple. Therefore, I will no longer dwell among you in a clear and visible way. Therefore, you you will be." Ex- to the ravages of whatever's going on in the world. Rome is in power, Rome takes over. Whatever happens. So God never says, you're not my people. One way or the other, he has made a covenant with us that we are his people, and that's why we are duty-bound to follow his command. If we weren't his people anymore, we wouldn't have a Torah, we wouldn't have a Jewish way of life. We wouldn't be bound by that covenant, but we are because we are still his people, although he's not visibly, clearly among us in a physical way as he was when there was a temple. If I can take a few minutes, I'll give an example. Okay. Um, I'm originally an American. I come from the U.S. There's one place in Johannesburg where American Independence Day is celebrated here in Johannesburg. July 4th is United States Day of Independence. Everywhere else in South Africa, that has no meaning whatsoever. But there's a building here in Johannesburg that the U.S. consulate or the U.S. embassy, and there... The 4th of July is a holiday. You see things happening because it is a piece of the United States plunked into the center of Johannesburg. That is the idea of an embassy. The reason why an embassy can be a place of refuge, if a person is looking for refuge from whatever he wants to hide in the embassy, because once he's in the embassy, he's legally in the United States. If he's in the South African embassy in the U.S., he's in a piece of South Africa in the middle of, uh, let's say, Washington. That's the way it works. Now imagine an embassy of God, where things work according to the rules of heaven. And because of that, there are miracles which would be considered fantastic by earthly standards. There were 10 regularly occurring miracles in the temple. I won't go through them, but they were there on a regular basis. Why? It's not that God made special 10 miracles in that place. It's because in the temple precincts, the law is not the law of earth. It's the law of heaven. It's above time. It's above space. So things which are normally governed by time and space, did not function that way in the temple. It operated according to the law of the host country, so to speak, the law of heaven. So that was God's embassy. When there's an embassy in a country, it's not just the embassy that's different. The whole country enjoys diplomatic relations with the whole of the host country. There are diplomatic dispatches going back and forth. There are exchanges of uh, personnel, and um, people work together on different levels, different um, representatives of each country and the other. And in the same way, when there was a temple, God's embassy on earth, so to speak, 
there were dispatches going back and forth. There's prophecies. There's um, all sorts of exchanges with the Urim and the Tumim, whereby God made his will known to people. All sorts of interchanges and exchanges that took place as a result of the fact that in one particular spot in Jerusalem, there is the temple. As a result of that, all over the world, things are different, especially in the land of Israel. But all over the world, things are different. When there's no embassy, then there's kind of no diplomatic relations. So things are more difficult. It's more difficult to to, to make, uh, for example, negotiations with regard to purchases of grain. Simple things change because at the very top, at the embassy level, things have shut down. Okay. I hope that makes it clear. To an extent. Thank you, Rabbi. Now, you said um, the last sentence where I said God had declared that you are no longer my people, that was incorrect. I want to read from the book of Hosea. I'm sure you know the text and you'll give some clarity. Hosea chapter 1. Verse 9, the Lord, I'm reading from the New International Version. You can read any version, read it. It doesn't really have a, an issue with the version. The Lord said, call him Lo-Amin, or Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is one of the texts that have shouted to many people, and we ignore it. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, again, God appears to be rejecting what appears again to be the people and what their ordinances. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. He continues to say, I want you to make me want to vomit. It seems as though in almost all these prophetic books, God declares a a divorce of a kind uh, between him and his people. Was there ever a time where there was a a reuniting of God and his people after God had said, you are no longer my people? Those prophecies, you'll notice again and again, are completely in line with what I said before. Well, the other way. What I said before is in complete alignment with those prophecies. What I said before was that the people focused overmuch on the structure of the temple as something in and of itself, and the worship in the temple as some value in and of itself, even while they neglected or forgot about the inner meaning and the, the, the spirit of it. So Isaiah is saying, you're bringing me offerings, you're offering me animals. God says, I own the world, I have enough animals, I don't need your animals. If you bring an animal as a sacrifice, the way it's meant to be brought, how is it meant to be brought? When a person brought a sacrifice to atone for his sin, what he was really saying was that I deserved to give my life because of the sin that I committed. God, in his mercy, said that if I, I truly recant and repent from my sin, and I resolve not to do it again, and I act out my repentance by bringing an animal under the altar, which symbolizes my inner animal, which got me to sin in the first place. If I do that, then together with my repentance, the offering is acceptable and desirable to, to God, and he will forgive me, and he will take me back into his good graces. But if I continue to sin, and I just bring the animal, what is, God said, what do I need the animal for? Now, the, the issue of my people, not my people, that you quoted from Hosea is quite different. And there we have to remember what a privilege it is. For example, when God says he's the God of Abraham. God of Abraham? God of Israel? He's the God of the whole world. But when God labels himself 
as the God of a certain individual or, or of a certain people, it's a tremendous privilege that he associates himself, his name, with that person or that nation. That privilege is no longer there when we are banished. And that's the meaning of what it says in Isaiah. I will not call myself the God of this people as though these were my people. No, that is not there anymore in, in evidence. It's not clear. Rabbi, just hold yeah. hold on for me. I need to take a break. We'll come back and I'll give you an opportunity to conclude your point. Stand by. Hashtag SAFM Facts of Faith. We are in conversation with Rabbi Levi Weinberg talking to us about the Jewish people, their faith, their culture, their history as we have come to learn from the Bible. And he has given us some context and perspective in order for us to understand a few things. I'm taking your calls and your text messages. I can see your voice notes. I can see your WhatsApp texts. We'll give you an opportunity to have those. If you want to call, you can call right now. Let's give the rabbi the opportunity to complete, complete his, his thought there. Go ahead, rabbi. So that unique identification, that privileged label is not in evidence when his people, when the, when... The Jewish people are in exile when they're persecuted, when they're dispersed, when they're despised. Then you don't see them as God's people. That special distinctiveness is gone. That is what uh, Hosea is talking about, and that is what will be recaptured when we are redeemed by the Messiah and we are, so to speak, taken back by God then it will be evident once again. There, there is a, a, a text that was written by by John. Uh, he's called John of Patmos, I don't know, maybe, or Revelator. But the John that wrote the book of, of Revelation, he, he seems to be saying something there that has been quoted by some to be referring to a people. And I'd like you to give us some perspective because this controversy amongst Jews and converted Jews, those who had converted to Christianity at the time of Christ, it seems to have continued and raged on in scriptural terms. I'm reading from the book of Revelation chapter 3 verse 9. This John writes, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship at thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Full stop. Close quote. Are are the present day Jews, the Jews that uh, John the Revelator or John of Patmos is referring to? I'll tell you what. One thing I know about Revelation is that we never know what he's talking about. (laughs) Everybody interprets the symbolism of revelations in whatever way he likes, and uh, it's been used to justify every kind of behavior and every kind of belief. So whatever you want to make of it, go right ahead. I, I don't subscribe to it. It's not part of our faith. I don't believe that, uh, as a Jew, that John is the one who's going to tell me in God's name what God expects of me, wants of me, thinks of me, that's not where I get my uh, sources from. Okay. And now there's a question that I want to read from WhatsApp. It's a WhatsApp text. Um, It reads, can you ask your guest about the motion or the notion that Jews are black and not what we are seeing today? This person don't tell us what his or her name. Kindly respond, Rabbi. They were black Jews. In several ways. Number one, there's certain Jews who came from places where they were black. They were African. Clearly, not all Jews were, or Israelites were black, because when Moses married a black woman, uh, she was distinctive as a black woman. And uh, so obviously the rest were not. They they didn't look European, they looked Mediterranean. That's one thing. That there were those who came from places where, where, where people were black. 
Furthermore, over the centuries, as I said before, Judaism is not an exclusive club. Anyone who wants is free to join as long as he's ready to accept the precepts of Judaism. He, she, I'm using the masculine, but I mean the feminine too. So over the years, there were many different races, tribes, ethnicities who joined Judaism. And uh, they were different colors, different races. There's no restriction, really, based on race or gender. And who can be a Jew? All right, and and then um, I want us to play some some WhatsApp voice notes for those who have sent some voice notes. Let's play the first one. Hello, Naya. My name is Monde from Kadeha. Can you ask Monde Rabbi, there, why did they kill the Jews now? Kill Jesus Christ, and what was the reason? Thank you. Oh, Monde says he's from Kadeha. I like that Monde. Nice. <laughs> He's no longer from Port Elizabeth. He's from Gavecha. That's true. It's true. It's called Gavecha now. Thank you for that note there, Monde. It would have been nice if you would have called there, Monde, because I don't know if there's evidence of Jews having killed Jesus. If you read those scriptures, it's the Romans that did that. I don't know. Kindly share with me where what you're talking about. But until you revert back with that clarity, I'll give the rabbi an opportunity to respond. But I don't know if there is record of that. Rabbi, can you clarify? He says, why did the Jews kill Jesus? It's very hard to accept that they killed him because by the time he came around by the, by the time of his life there was no longer any court who who uh, implemented the death penalty the the court who would do that was called the sanhedrin yes and already 40 years before the destruction of the temple in other words the year 30 approximately there already was no Sanhedrin in the the temple precincts, and therefore they no longer practiced the death penalty. So I don't see how it could have been a Jewish court which would execute him. It had to have been the Romans, because they were the only ones who were executing people at the time. In addition, the, the style of execution, which was crucifixion, was never a Jewish way of of executing even those who deserved to be executed, who were executed for whatever crime, but they were never crucified. Yeah, they were still... very hard to establish that uh, it was a Jewish court. Very, very, very unlikely. I, I understand that, and I, I have qualms with that, but I suspect the sentiment that he is trying to bring forth there is the series of events that led to the Romans taking over. He was never arrested by the Romans. He was arrested by the military or the, the militia under the control of the, the Sanhedrin. He was tried by night, not by the Roman government. When he was asked and uh, he, he was, when it was betrayed and all of those things, it was never at a, 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 the, under the authority of the Romans. He was only taken to the Romans when they really wanted the execution to take place. And even then the Romans did not really want to kill him. They said, I find no sin on this man. And he washed his hands off this whole situation, gave them the option. Which one do you want me to release? This is the time of the year where I release one. Which one do you want me to release? Do you want me to release Barabbas or this man you call Jesus or Yeshua? And the masses said, Crucify him. Crucify him. Which one do you want? Barabbas. I suspect that's the sentiment he is trying to get through there. I'm going to ask you, Rabbi, to mull over this and respond after the break. Stand by. Naye Lupondwana on SAFM. Back. You're still listening to um, Facts of Faith. We are going to conclude our conversation right now. Rabbi, um, you can respond. It would appear as though the execution, the crucifixion on the cross was never at the well, it was never because of the breaking of any Roman law. It was because the Jews really wanted this to happen. Even when the Romans said, 
I see no sin, no fault on this man. They, they continued wanting him to to die. So I suspect, and I could be wrong, he'll probably call it and say, no, you're wrong, Naya. But I suspect that's the sentiments he's trying to bring forth, that the Jews wanted him dead and they presented a case that was not executable, but still they demanded an execution. Kindly clarify that point, Rabbi. I'll tell you what. There are four Gospels who report the events leading up to the crucifixion. Each one reported differently. Matthew, Luke, uh, the two others. Matthew, Luke, who else? Mark. Matthew, Mark, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah, Luke and John. Okay. Each one gives different quotes attributed to the people. Each one attributes different statements to the Romans. It's a welter of confusion. All of them were written long after the events. All of them were written when Rome was in power. And it wasn't politically correct to accuse Romans of, uh, of the dastardly deed. So it, you have to take it with a big grain of salt when they quote the masters. I don't see that the masters saw Jesus as some major criminal. They wanted them to put to death. And since when does the Sanhedrin listen to the masters anyhow? Since when do we uh, do we execute a person because the masters want them executed? There's, not, there's no such thing. Why was there payment for the 30 pieces of silver then, Rabbi? Who paid those 30 pieces of silver? Who had him arrested, betrayed again, and arrested? Again, I don't want to comment on the story as it was reported, because in one gospel, the 30 pieces appear, and another one, it doesn't in one gospel. Judas is the one, and another is not the one. So I don't want to comment on the details of the story. It could be that there was one person who paid off a Roman officer in because the Romans couldn't care less if somebody's going around and saying that he's the son of God or the Messiah or whatever he's saying. Maybe, so someone maybe paid off the officer to, to pay attention to take up the case. Okay, It may be. But I, I can't comment on any direct quote by the Gospels of anyone in the name of anyone who was there, alleged to be there at the time, because there's so much confusion about the event. Okay, I want to play another voice note. That's your answer. I'll take that, Rabbi. Let's, let's go to the next voice note. Go ahead. Good evening, brother. Uh, brother, now with due respect, you know, I don't know uh, if the Rabbi can uh, help me there. You know, since uh, uh, the Bible says uh, all humankind descend from Adam and Eve, now from which segment of the land of descendant where uh, the black man uh, comes now? Because uh, I don't understand you where the black man uh, line comes from. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Norman from Brixton. All right, Norman, Rabbi, would you like to respond to that? Mankind has two origins. One, Adam. Adam had many, many descendants. But 95, 98% of them died out in the Great Flood. The only ones who survived were Noah and his three sons, their wives, their children. So mankind kind of started over again after the Flood. So that's why all of humanity are called not just some children of Adam, but children of Noah, because there was a new beginning with Noah. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Africans descend from Ham. That is, there was a, a third of humanity, you might say, which was, which was black, which was Africa. Uh, the, there are Europeans who come from Yafes, there are Semites who come from Shame, that's the name Semite, from Shame. So Jews and Arabs and uh, everybody in that region descends from Shame. The black, the black people descend from Chom, 
So they all they all go back to Noah, who survived the flood with his three sons and their families. Okay, that's right. where they come from. All right, Rabbi, I've got. Two and a half minutes remaining. I've got two questions. If you can give me brief answers, please. Um, the, the record suggests that when this Yeshua was crucified, um, uh, there was an earthquake and the veil that would separate the holy of holies with the holy was torn in twain. Did that happen? It happened, but it happened about uh, 40 years later. I'm not sure the, exactly the year of the crucifixion. And that's also not so clear from the record. But in any case, that time when the, not the veil, but the curtain of the Holy of Holies was pierced, was under the Roman occupation during the Great War, which lasted from the years 68 to 70. Uh, That was the major destruction of Israel as a country, Judea as a country and the major exile of Jews from Israel by Rome. During the course of that destruction, the the curtain was pierced, yes. Okay, and the final question. You're supposed to be a monotheistic people, am I correct? Is, is, are Jews monotheistic? Correct. Then what, 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 what is happening in the book of Genesis when God says, let us? Why is there a plurality there and yet... This is supposed to be a singularity. The the name Elohim, which is translated usually as Almighty, is a plural in the sense that it has a plurality of powers. Almighty. When God says, let us make man, he takes from every type of the creature in the world and incorporates it in man. Who is he talking to, Rabbi? That's what I'm trying to, to establish. Angels. To the angels. So God was creating with the angels there. The creators he are not just one being. It's with them, but in, in a sense, mankind took over from what the angels were before. They were the only sentient beings who had any kind of uh, status before from day two of creation. Here comes day six of creation, and God is about to create man. So he says, let us create man. In fact, we learn a very great principle from here, that a person, a ruler, should always uh, not consult, maybe that's the wrong word, but take into account his, his lower official when he's about to embark on a project, and not just Voiced it on them. Okay. All right. So the language is let us, not I will. All right. Uh, okay. Our time is up. Thank you very much, Rabbi. I always appreciate your insights. Always eye opening. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for coming through and talking to us, Rabbi. And that's how we're going to end our conversation from me, Nayelu Pondona, and the team, Zelma and Joy. Have a wonderful evening and Godspeed.